you have post post traumatic chalice disorder. Welcome to the Dead Format, episode 28. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, who you may recognize from the Vintage Cube Trophy leaders, Tom Smiley, and we're here to talk about Legacy. I'm off vacation. I haven't opened Magic Online since school started last week. I'm sad that I haven't got any more cube drafts in, but I had a pretty good conversion rate for the time that I did have to play. Yeah, we were looking, I want to say it was last weekend one night, and you were just off the first page. You were at like 19 trophies or something. I was doing quite a bit of work, but I think I only got a total of like 21, I want to say 21 cube drafts total. So I don't think it was as high as 19, because I definitely had quite a few 2-in-1s, but everything was a 2-in-1 or a 3 now. Very nice. Yeah, I got bipped this week. I played one with uh, with our friend Charlie. He just stopped by the other day. And we drafted blue-white control. And then I went on to draft blue-white control six straight times in the cube this past week. I, I don't know why. It's just like so... I don't know. The cards just jump out at me or something. I never really gravitate towards that color pair, but it seems really strong in this cube. In my last 11 drafts, I drafted blue-white nine times. And one, it's because blue is one of the most powerful colors in the cube, and white ends up being underdrafted quite frequently. So you can end up building a blue-white tempo shell with some solid white creatures and powerful blue spells, and I found it to be quite open. Yeah, it's crazy. I've always leaned more towards green, but this has been all blue-white, maybe splash a black card, maybe splash a red card. But basically, I don't know what it is about the changes that they made this year, but blue-white seems wide open. But this isn't a cube cast. We're here to talk about Legacy. We had Lawrence on last week, which was an amazing episode. I actually listened to this one uh, just the other day. It was like our year in review, and I think it went really well, to tell you the truth. I think he was a great guest. I want to thank Lawrence too. That episode was outstanding. He brought a great touch of insight to a lot of the things that happened last year. And it was great to have him on. Yeah. He's got a great memory for that shit. Like stuff that happened back in, I don't know, February, March of last year. It all sort of blends together for me, but maybe because he's so much younger, like his, his memory just isn't eroded by all, all the alcohol and ecstasy. Yeah. I, uh, I, We'll go with you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to react to that. So, so since our last cast, we had uh, Channel Fireball announce the Grand Prix in Niagara Falls, something that we predicted, actually. The Niagara Falls Grand Prix is going to be Legacy. But when we predicted this, we didn't realize that that was Easter weekend. So we kind of went from like you know going up really elated that Niagara Falls Northeast Legacy GP to oh, fuck, you know, Easter weekend. That's, for someone like me, there's there's just no chance I'm going to go on Easter weekend. It would cost too much equity, like, personally. Like, holidays are just a battle between 
whose family you're going to see, you know, what state you're going to spend it in. And to just bail on something like that, that would just cost me way too many points, uh, in my opinion. So it, it was really disappointing. I don't know. How'd you feel about it? Well, I'm I'm locked into going. I already talked to my wife about it. I think that if this happened next year or the year after, where um, my son kind of knows what's going on a little bit more, <laughs> then I might I might not have been able to to get out for the weekend. But we're not really worried about the holiday weekend too much. Although I understand there are lots of people that that, that affects. So, are you bringing your family? Is this like a Richmond situation? So we're not sure yet whether or not she's going to bring him. I don't think so. I think that. If it was in a different location, that we might be we might be down for that. But on the American side of Niagara Falls, it's really not not a choice location. And I'm planning on driving, and I don't know if I want to have all that going on for an eight hour car trip. Okay, so it's gonna be like uh, like your team then. I'm actually not sure. The two teammates that I have that I've been trying to sort of get their schedule for for the SCGs and the Grand Prix I'm going to are considering selling out a legacy. And oh, sweet. they Yeah, I mean like they they basically just said that they love the format. They only get to play it once or twice a year. And having four or five thousand dollars in cardboard for something that they only get to play once or twice a year isn't worth it when they have credit cards and student loans. So I one hundred percent understand that, but that's that's a spot that they are in. Yeah, that sucks, man. I'm sorry to hear that. Yep. I think uh, JT. Is it JT that I know, or the other one? I think you know. I think you know rap and JT. Rap plays a little bit more legacy than JT does. Okay. Yeah. Rap. We're, you're going to be missed around uh, gaming, etc. Now, this wasn't. This isn't a definite. No, I mean it's a story you hear a lot, right? And I think ultimately, that's that's why these local scenes are falling apart, right? Because you have some people who, for whatever reason, whatever's going on in their life, like credit card debt, student loans, you know, whatever it is, they see these just $2,000, $3,000 worth of paper that they're using, you know, twice a year, three times a year that they could, you know, just, just sell. And there, there's also like, you know, market concerns right now. A lot of people want to be in cash right now. So people sell out and you don't have like the weekly star cities pumping legacy all the time. Like we had two years ago, three years ago. So there's not like the new blood entering to replace these people necessarily in the local scenes. A lot of times people sell out and those cars wind up going across the country or across an ocean. So I think that that's really, you know, what what local scenes are dealing with right now. I would agree with that. I think you just convinced me to sell all of my legacy cards. If you guys want legacy cards, hit me up. Yeah, I mean, I'm selling all my legacy cards for old school. <laughs> All right, so we actually had two emails this week. Oh, we had you, you just sprung that on me, bro. I had no idea. We had two people, two different people, send us an email. So your shout out last week about hit us up with a Gmail. We increased. Yeah, we got we got a shitload of emails compared to how many we usually or how many we usually do. So I. I'm Here not going to go back and look, but I think this might be a new high score for us. It is. It is. We've never had two in a week before. <laughs> All right. So first one is from Josh Bingerman. And Wait, they're from said, two different people? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Two oh, emails sick. from two different people. 
one right, is a continue. repeat. This is this is not. All right, so we got an email from Josh, and they said, "Hi, Tom and Ann. Firstly, I wanted to say that I've been enjoying your cast a lot over the last six months. Thanks for continually putting out great legacy content. <laughs> You're welcome. We we try, we try. All right, wanted to give you." a couple of pieces of feedback about your last episode with Lawrence. I really enjoyed when you all were talking about artists. I'm one of those degenerates on the artist signature game for the past five years or so, so I appreciate the discussion. Also, I wanted to thank Ian in particular oof, yes. for calling out Bizarro Stormy by its actual name. The deck plays radically different than Tinfin, so I appreciate when people make the distinction. If you ever like to have someone on to talk about the degeneracy of Tinfin's Bizarro Stormy Ice Station Zebra variants, let me know. Ice Station Zebra, I don't think that I know that one. That sounds like it might be some sort of like dog whistle or something. I've never heard that before. I'm sure it's a it's a C Lab reference. I just I don't know I don't know that particular version. Interesting. But, but Josh says, hopefully I'll get a chance to meet both of you at GP Niagara later this year. RIP Ian <laughs> there. Cheers. So Josh, thank you for your feedback. Yeah, very nice email. And also I should add that I'm going to go to SCG Syracuse. We kind of glossed over this. I meant to mention it. But if you're in that area and that's why, I don't know if you said his name was Binghamton or he's from Binghamton or something like that. But I think uh, his name was Binghamton. From Binghamton? No, I, I don't know where he's from. Okay. So, yeah, if you're from that area, I will definitely 100% be at Star City Games Syracuse Legacy Open March 2nd or March 3rd, that first weekend of March. Uh, very pumped about that. So, are you going to that, Tom? I am. Are you staying with, are you staying with us? Are you staying with uh, Dominic? I am. Then, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I'm staying, I'm staying with Dominic. My my friends weren't, or my team wasn't forthcoming in whether or not they were going to go. So I just I decided to book because I'm locked in for it. Yeah, then I probably will. I think I'm going to fly out with Jerry. We've got to talk about it. But I think Jerry and I are flying out late Friday night. So, And our second email from a different person, but repeat emailer, our Swedish friend, oh. Robin... Holy said shit. that he also really liked our episode with Lawrence, Accumulated Lawrence, which is actually, that should have been the title of the episode. That's more creative than I came up with. And he has also been playing a noble rug list that he sent to you. So both of these emails are Ian-inspired. <laughs> and he is, he is very excited to talk to you about the deck. So maybe... If you all are at SCG Syracuse coming up, you get to see Ian playing his Noble Rug deck. Yeah, that's sick. I didn't realize we had an email from Robin. That makes me excited. I had told him, so he played the Noble Rug deck in a weekly and we talked about it a couple months ago. And I told him if he played the deck again, for sure to send me an email because at that point in time, I was, as far as I knew, the only, buddy, the only person playing this deck. And since then, our our boy Tom Cairns, Teabag Tom, has picked up the deck. And really, I think he's run more leagues 
in the past two weeks than I probably did in all of November and December. I think he's probably over 10 leagues at this point. So it's really awesome to have somebody to test with. And uh, we'll probably get into this later, but he actually put up a 5-0 this week uh, with the deck and it got published, uh, unlike the last one I put up. So he will, or we will see, I guess, if anybody else picks up the deck. But it's just been awesome to have like somebody to bounce ideas off of and iterate the deck slowly with. So this is great, man. We got a community now, Noble Rug. We should uh we should get a like a thread on the source going. I I haven't been on the fucking source in months, dude. I don't. Even I was know I was gonna there. make a comment about how nobody's been on the source. Yeah, now. like is it still there? I don't know. It's there. I after our Rodney episode, I went to post in the opposition deck thread, and uh, <laughs> there's a thread for that the deck. Podcast. There's a thread for that deck. Yes, I found it. So did you leave the podcast link? I did. People said that they would listen to it on their way home for Christmas and thank you. And I haven't been back to the source since. So I don't, <laughs> know, I don't know how it went over. I actually just got a piece of mail when I got home from, from our friend Rodney. Oh, congratulations. So, everybody, if you would like to have us talk about your emails, you can send us emails at deadformatcast at gmail.com. You can rate us on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud just because we we like that shit. And if you like our podcast, if you are one of the few people who listens, who really enjoys hearing us every week, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dead format. So we also had a couple questions come into us from the Discord today. Uh, the first of which came from our friend Spooner. Rich Spoonholes, and his question was, "How did we feel about strip mine being unrestricted in old school?" Or let me give thirty seconds of background for people who don't play old school. Basically, New England old school group, which is over five hundred strong now on Facebook. Uh, Tom and I are both members. Had the constitutional convention back in December, where we set the the rules for New England. Uh, by popular vote and we voted i did not personally but as a group we voted to restrict strip mine so the events that happen within new england run by new england old school are going to be playing with only one strip mine uh for the foreseeable future until the next convention so i believe that's why he asked this question and tom how do you have any opinion on strip mine i i have i have none but I love the fact that each individual region is like forming franchise teams and setting their own rules. I feel like we're headed toward an old schoolish civil war with uh, whatever the modern equivalent of the Mason Dixon line is. Bro, well, I'll be going to the Bootleggers Ball in Tennessee in uh, in May. I believe it's Memorial Day weekend this year, so it is really a lot more like that than people might realize. And- and down south, you can still play your four strip mine. Well, I'm not really sure where Tennessee falls on that line, but no, for sure you can play four strip mine in Tennessee. I'm just joking. Um, I 100% believe that four strip mines should be a part of old school. A lot of people, when they don't know much about the format, or they're just coming in, they see strip mine, and you think about it in cubes, you think about it in early Magic, you think about it, you know how gross it would be in Legacy or how it's restricted in Vintage, and they just think. Oh, that's stupid. You know, four strip mines is is a stupid thing. 
But you need to understand the card pool stops at Fallen Empires in 1994. So there is no wasteland. And the cards that punish, you know, the, the cards that punish you for not playing basics, the cards like uh, back to basics is not in the format. Wasteland is not in the format. All you have really is, is Blood Moon that specifically punishes non-basic lands. So the ideal perfect scenario would be to errata strip mine into wasteland or just add wasteland you know into the format and ban strip mine but that's not going to happen so in practice strip mine is almost exactly wasteland the fact that it targets basics is super irrelevant and the format is much better for having that sort of you know what wasteland does for legacy allows aggro decks to stall you on turn two, turn three, you know, just give them that one extra turn to get over the hump before you can cast your Wrath of God or whatever it is. Aggro decks need all the help they can get, basically. And I think that Strip Mine is vital. And the other part to this is Library of Alexandria as well. You know, having a turn one library is just lights out in in like a control mirror if the other person can't strip it. So... This is making the likelihood that those games happen, you know, go up by, I don't know, I don't want to say twofold, threefold, because you don't know what what other answers people are going to start to run, but it's definitely more likely now. But yeah, that's, that's tried to keep it under two minutes. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to trust your, your judgment on that. Everything sounds right. So thank you for your question, Rich. And we had two other segments we're going to do today that, were contributed from our patrons if you go to our patreon one of the rewards is you can suggest a segment or part of a cast where ian and i will produce that question or suggestion that you had and we had two from suka time and he asked what's what's our baseline for homebrews is there a rule of thumb for not spending time working on a deck unless it meets certain thresholds like back in the day when twin was still in modern there was the rule of thumb that if the deck couldn't beat twin then it wasn't really viable to work on is there anything that you have like that for legacy so i have a lot of thoughts on this i think this is a very good question i'm not sure if he articulated it into exactly as I'm understanding it, but I think I know what he's asking. I think it's a very good question. Do you want me to just run with this or do you, you want to throw your thoughts in first? No, I, so mine, like if you have thoughts on this, that's great because I haven't really worked on a homebrew ever. I dude, Is that true? Yeah. I mean like back when I first started playing magic, Sure. Like I would, I would look at the cards that I had and put something together, but I've never worked on a deck that didn't at least show a little bit of initial promise. Like I was an early adopter of certain decks and I worked on the tuning of them, but I think tuning and brewing are two completely different things. I agree. I, I, I see where you're coming from. That's so funny, though, because I met you in the context of that Bant deck when basically only you and I were playing it in early 2016. So I just assumed that you were like this brewer guy. No, I 
I knew that that deck showed a lot of promise because I played it online. I did a ton of testing with it in paper. So that, and that wasn't a list that I built from scratch. I think we both ended up sort of taking our own takes off of a list that we saw online. Yeah. So we we have Unko Man to thank for brewing that. But really, that wasn't really a brew either. It was a pretty traditional Bant Stoneblade list. It just sort of popped out from from underneath where it was hiding after after Grand Prix DC. Yeah, for sure. And I just wasn't aware of it, I guess, historically. So it seemed very novel to me coming from like only ever playing or hearing about Esper Stoneblade. And when I came, and Esper Deathblade, I should say. But when I came into it, you know, you were there and I just figured that, you know, you had been working since the inception of this deck. So that makes a lot more sense now that you give the historical context. All right. So what do you, what do you have for this? <sighs> All right. So. This is something, you know, basically Tom Karen's honorary spot on the, on the cast because we're talking about him again already. This is something that I was just talking to him about uh, yesterday or the day before with regard to that bug true name deck, the noble true name not Delver deck that he was playing, if you recall. It has uh, Hierarchs, Strixes, true names, and Leovolts and two yes. Tarmogoyfs. So he was playing that deck for a while, and he went through a bunch of iterations. And he asked me the other day what I thought about cutting a true name from that deck. And I was like, listen, at this point, what what are you really? Like, what what is this deck if it's not for true names? Because when I went into this, I went in with the vision of, okay, what's the best noble true name deck in these bug colors so once you get off true name you're you're off that path right you're you're on to something else and i feel like in legacy where the decks are also hyper specialized you either have to be the you have to be the best at doing a certain thing or your deck specifically has to be a reaction to the meta at large and i guess there's some sort of blending of those two in, in a deck like Grixis Delver, but I don't think that that space exists in many colors, right? You, you have to have access to the right answers in your main deck and the right answers in your sideboard and the right threats in your main deck. So it's not very common for like a just a classic mid-range deck to do well in Legacy, right? There's generally only space for like one, maybe two of them at a time, in my opinion. So I think when you're brewing, you want to be doing something the best, right? Like show and tell is an eight by eight combo deck in the abstract i know that there's like trinity tell now but you have four show and tells you have four uh, sneak attacks four grizzle brands and four emrakuls and then the rest of your deck is either protecting the combo or digging to the combo and because of the colors that it's in and the natural immunity to blood moon and such it becomes the de facto best eight by eight combo deck and Similarly, you've got like, uh, you know, Miracles, it, it, Pure Miracles is like the best blue-white control deck. This is going back like to the, the top counterbalance days, but still to this day, right? You want to be the best at something. Do you, do you know where I'm going with this? 
Yeah, you you the the only sort of feedback that I had is kind of just a different way of saying what you're saying, which is just you don't want to be a bad version of something else. Yeah, so, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think I think that's Jerry Thompson, like straight from the game or from top level. I actually don't know who said that, but is, is I top level Chapin. Yeah, it sounds like I think a Chapin. I've heard say that before. Okay, so I'm sure multiple people have that. That is not mine, but you don't want to be a bad version of something else. So if you do want to innovate and brew. It has to be in a space that people aren't really focused at. So like legacy blue mid-range decks, that's not really the brewer's paradise, right? Ultra fast combo with new cards that have been printed. Trying to break something like Arclight Phoenix or Creeping Chill. Those, those are places you can go to when new cards come out. Maybe something like Experimental Frenzy. But the suggestion to make sure that you're doing something new and powerful makes sense. And then after playing a little bit with the deck, you can figure out whether or not it's workable by tuning or whether or not there just isn't anything there. Yeah, and I would suggest for sure that before anybody tries to brew anything, that they play real quote-unquote real legacy decks first right like i didn't come into the format with some brew i i played junk blade first that it was like picula or whatever there were like these lists online that i found dead guy-ish with death right then on to esper death blade you need, you need to have like a solid understanding of the formats the format first so that you can say okay this deck does these things and has these problems with this deck, and then try to solve those problems for a certain deck. Like, you know, maybe with that Arclight Phoenix example, right? There's this kind of like blue red space that we've talked about before, where there's like Splinter Twin, or there could be like this Arclight Phoenix deck, or just like a, a blue moon sort of anything in like blue red and staying in blue red that is potentially like a turn four combo deck is is sort of viable, right? Like it might be a worse version of sneak and show, but maybe you particularly think like sneak and show is vulnerable right now because as a target on spec, everybody's playing a certain card, you know, everybody's playing death and taxes traditionally is going to hate that deck. So I don't want to play sneak and show. What can I still play in those colors that, would get around, would skirt this hate, right? And that's how you end up in a deck like like Splinter Twin or like this Arclight Phoenix deck, in my opinion. The other thing is, like like you said, you know, new cards come out and you want to try them. So you can start with a new card and say, like, I remember for me it was uh, when Black Vice got unbanned. I think that that's probably the most bruise. I, I was writing down at least 5, 10, 20 deck lists a day for a while because when I played... 1.5 before i left the game black vice was like the best shit and then it was a banned card so i thought that it was still a powerful potentially a powerful card and i wanted to find out what the best black vice shell was right was it like a blue black delver stifle 
Shadow of Doubt, Sinkhole, Jay's Friends Prodigy, Black Vice deck? Did it have Master of the Feast, right? Do you remember Master of the Feast? That was the one double black 5-5 flyer that Howling Mind your opponent? Yep, exactly, from Theros. It was just a 5-5 flyer for three that your opponent drew an extra card. So you're playing Vice as as a threat. So it was like Vice, Delver, Master of the Feast. You know, I was trying a bunch of shit. I went a lot of different directions with it. I had middling success. I tried a lot of those brews, either online or I brought them to locals. At the time, it was before I even knew about Etsy, so I was bringing them to Vatsy. Uh, I might have brought... It might have coincided with when I started going to Etsy, but I definitely... Yeah, I tried a lot of decks in in that space. And like that's sort of like when a powerful a card that powerful comes along. I think Arclight Phoenix has a touch of this too, where it's just like this extremely powerful card. And I remember when we went to Montreal, do you remember this when we were driving back and I was talking to you about how Dave and Yam and I had a discussion about like what the best Arclight Phoenix deck in Legacy would be? Yes, I don't remember the conversation. I remember that we definitely drove back. I do not remember what happened. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just telling you about how like we were trying to spitball like because there's no Gataxian Pro, right? Like what the best Arclight Phoenix deck would be hypothetically. Yep. Like would it include Manamorphos? Would it include Cabal Therapy? That sort of stuff. Like what the what the next threat would be? Was there's Young Pyromancer? But you know, just those sort of exercises. And I think that probably why Suja Times asking this just because we've talked to him quite a bit in the discord is because he was brewing that experimental frenzy deck and he he'd asked a few questions like is this just a worse version of ant or how do you know if this deck has a space or how how would i know if this deck was just a worse version of ant i'm paraphrasing because i don't think that's what he said exactly but i think that's what he was getting at right I think so. Or or a worse version of Belcher. Mm. I mean it feels like it feels like obviously it's a it's a storm deck, but there are lots of similarities between ritualing out your four mana card that is gonna set you up to win the game. And I believe that he was just playing black red, right? He was, correct. So he, he gets access to the discard that Belcher doesn't have, but Ant and TES are established decks that have been around for quite a while. So while Experimental Frenzy might have a place, at the beginning it is surely not going to be as powerful as those those two previously mentioned decks. Yeah, and honestly, I played against him only once, and I told him, you know, unfortunately, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about combo decks. It's really not my my instinct to play combo decks like I, I don't draft them in cube i if i play them in legacy is sort of like as an oddity for one week so i felt like i wasn't the right person for him to be asking about this but playing against it it didn't actually feel like i was playing against belcher or ant or test it felt like i was playing against blackguard reanimator okay. which is weird because it's not it's not blackguard reanimator right but because of the spells right he has it's a uh, Thoughtseize, Duress, Faithless Looting, Black Red, like a Badlands deck, right? It felt like playing against Black Red, and what I was thinking playing against him was, is this 
a worse version of Black Red, actually, not Belcher. But I do agree, when that card came out, we were talking, it was like our set review for Ravnica 3. Yep. And you had mentioned Belcher, and I hadn't thought about it with, with regard to that card. And I do think that there might exist like a space where that card could go into a Belcher deck. I was trying to solve for like what problem that would answer better than than Belcher. And once I found out that Spirit Guys couldn't be exiled from the top of your deck, I just kind of gave up on it because that's a pretty big miss right there. Yeah, and the fact that you can't play lands off the top leads you to really wanting to play a low land count. So, well, Belcher would, would have a low land count anyway, though. Right, and and Oops All Spells would also have a low land count. It just leads you into, right. into decks similar enough that aren't, super well positioned anyway to to make me not really motivated to work on it at least that's where i'm coming from okay yeah i i don't know honestly i'm not like zach elsick or something there could absolutely exist a combo deck in that space involving that card that i would just completely miss because i'm not aware of some of these sort of combo enabler cards or you know, the historic, historical, like, what cards were in Belcher. And I'm not, like, great with, with rules questions either, like exiling the spirit guide off the top. I thought that was going to work, so. I think that, really, you're, you're trying to resolve a four-mana spell. It's got to win you the game when you cast it, right? So I think that that's where you have to start. Like, how am I going to win the game when I resolve the spell? Did we answer that? I don't know, man. Hopefully, hopefully we did. I'm I'm definitely not the one to go through to answer questions about brews because it's something that I don't really do. But in my mind, I know a lot of successful people who have their notebooks and they'll write down their thoughts and their ideas and they have a lot more time to play than I do. And they'll just play a ton. And they'll know as soon as they've built a deck and they've played a few games with it, that, wow, there is something here. It's just a feeling that you get when you start to play your deck. And once you get that feeling, then it's worth the time to put in to tune it and figure out what the matchups are and how you, how you can fix your bad ones or how your deck is positioned. But there isn't really any other advice I can give rather than just get more experience playing with your brews and then see what stands out to you and focus on that. The one constraint that I always start with now also when I'm thinking about decks is Chalice because Chalice right now, looking at MTG top eight for the last two months, the the most appearances of anything is Eldrazi aggro. It's right on the heels are show and tell their aggregated storm, their aggregated blue-white control, and their aggregated Grixis Delver and Grixis Control. But we're seeing Eldrazi Aggro. They have post as like a separate category. And then the Blood Moon Stompy deck has been doing really well lately. So I think Chalice, in the games that I'm playing at least, it's approaching 20% of the meta. So I think that you have to when you're building a deck, one of your first things you think about is what do I do against Chalice, right? And I think that that leads you to either 
be in on force of will and then hopefully also be playing red so you can play like an abrade or ancient grudge sort of strategy which is unfortunately like limiting to the format that's just a brief aside well it is it is a huge part of the meta right now and you definitely need to have an answer for it so i was falling asleep on sunday night and i was like playing finishing up a league and i was like optimus three four four who the like i was like this name looks so familiar and I'm looking at a hand on the draw that's Trop, Volk, Wasteland, Noble, Days, Delver, Brainstorm. And I'm like, this is a Chalice deck, isn't it? Like, I feel like Optimus has got to be a Chalice deck. And I was like, uh, you can't throw this hand away, though. I mean, this is why you're playing this deck, right? So it's fucking Zach. Of course, it's Zach Turgeon. Like, I don't know. I just hadn't played against him online in quite a while. But he's Optimus, you know? And yes. he smacks the turn one chalice, and I'm just like, God damn it, I've been here so many times. I feel like, uh, I don't know, man. There's no stats to back this up, but I feel like I play against chalice a lot. Having Zach in your local playgroup, probably, that, that's probably just giving me like this uh, post-traumatic. Po- post-traumatic stress, yeah. Yeah, you have post post-traumatic chalice disorder. Post-traumatic Zach disorder, yep. Yep. Okay. So, yeah, I guess when you are starting from scratch and brewing, you need to be able to identify what the challenges the deck is going to face. And a ritual-based storm deck, obviously, Chalice is an issue for. And there's this thing, too, with, like, you you mentioned how brewers will brew a bunch of decks, and then you mentioned playing a lot. And honestly, in my experience, a lot of the best brewers either aren't very good players or don't actually play a lot and they'll sort of need to have this symbiotic relationship with a with like a grinder somebody who's just playing a whole bunch of matches and you know just maybe iterating the deck a bit yeah i mean obviously outsourcing outsourcing your testing is a really good way of getting more work done if you have a team that you're working with and you are somebody who you have people who believe that you're a good inspiration for deck brews, then you can be working on multiple projects at once. Yeah. And like what I was going to say is like this email that Robin sent us or like just working with Tom on this rug deck has increased my productivity with this deck tenfold because he thinks of cards that I haven't thought of. I've played, you know, 30, 40 leagues with this deck, so I've been in situations that he doesn't have to go into to know why a certain card's in the sideboard. And I feel like where the deck, I would say my my pace of development on the deck was like a 3 or 4 out of 10. Working with him has gone to like a 7 or 8 because he suggests a bunch of sideboard cards. Sometimes I'll suggest one and he'll be able to run a league or vice versa with the card, you know, run a couple leagues and and say, oh, it didn't fit in this matchup. Because you can you can write it all down and have like this in Excel, like this this finished spread like a sideboard mapping spreadsheet. But I generally only make those for like Grand Prix, like the week before, where I'm really tightening up and I, I know for sure. Like right now we're still at the point where we're like, oh, you know, 
is there a way that we can get one of these like trickeries out and play another card? Like, you know, would, would Kozlak's return fit better here or uh, sudden demise or, you know, we're, we're still at that discovery phase. And I feel like it goes a lot quicker when you have multiple people working on it and people you trust. Yeah, obviously there are reasons why people work in teams. And when you see collaboration behind a deck, you can really get a ton of work done. So it, it definitely is a benefit to not work by yourself. So so I'm I'm glad that he was talking to our Discord about card choices and and things like that with the deck that he was building. Yeah, and just talking to people can be like therapeutic because you don't realize you have these blocks in your mind where you keep like missing a certain card or you keep making the same mistake over and over again. And sometimes someone will point it out to you, but sometimes also just having to say it out loud will put your thoughts in order for you. So I would really recommend to anybody who's interested in this kind of stuff to just engage with people because the people who are brewing decks and wanting people to test their decks you might be like kind of intimidated to speak to them. I know when I first started playing Legacy, I definitely wasn't going to go speak to somebody who was an expert on a deck. Like let's say like a like a Bryant Cook with with Tess, right? I wasn't about to be like, "Hey Bryant, you know, I think this card would be good." Or like that just seems ridiculous, right? It it is when you can just go to theepicstorm.com <laughs> and find all of your storm needs. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, like People who are passionate about decks, and especially people who are brewing decks, just want other people to play those decks. Like, there's not that many people out there that are working with these like fully fledged teams, especially not in Legacy. Like, that's so rare. So, most people, in my experience, are just going to be happy to be talking to you about about their deck. You know, they're passionate about it, and most people who are, I think, creative enough to be working on decks aren't going to be dicks about it if if you follow like i know that i know that like in uh in other magic communities people can kind of be like a little touchy about like sharing their tech or whatever but I, that's really not something you see much in legacy at all timing is a big part of it too right like the week or two before a grand prix is not the time to be doing this that is that is 100 percent true but if it's just like the middle of january if somebody's going to be an asshole to you, then they're just an asshole. So let's let's wrap that up. Yeah, man. So the the real question, though, Sugatime, actually, you speak to this. He's been a patron since when? He has been a $10 patron for as long as I can remember. I believe he started in November, right when we started our Patreon. So... If you are a $10 a month member, you can suggest topics for us to talk about. And his second topic is kind of timely. And especially if you're a newer legacy player trying to get into the format, one of the, I don't want to say most difficult things, but one of the more important things that you need to do early on is identify what deck your opponent is playing. And... For those of us that have been playing Legacy for a while, this kind of comes naturally. But even to an experienced player, like last week you were talking about your experience with the Grixis Blood Moon deck going into Grand Prix Seattle and misidentifying what your opponent was on off of a probe early on. 
Yeah, and that particularly was a demonstration of how our friend uh, Wilson Hunter builds decks that do confuse people. And even playing the deck, I was confused in a certain situation. So I was just hi- highlighting like you know how good he was at that. But yes, identifying decks, especially when you're playing like a, a deck where you have to like set up a ponder early. You know, I don't want to be like, oh, blue decks are harder to play or anything like that. Typical, you know, knowledge or, or meme or whatever in the community. But you do a lot of times have to plan out your turns in advance because you're aware of what you could be drawing potentially or what you could be shuffling away with a brainstorm. So identifying decks is a big part of playing blue decks successfully, to be honest. And I feel like right now we're in a spot where... The matchups where you know exactly what your opponent's playing early are split between the mashup of blue piles where your opponent's opening plays are going to be virtually indistinguishable because they're dual lands and cantrips versus the ones where you are locked into one or two decks based off of their starts. Yeah, exactly. You, you put that very well. The the other problem is preordain. Preordain used to be pretty much a combo only card. You'd see it in show and tell and you'd see it in storm. And now you're starting to see preordain in the blue piles as well. So a volcanic island preordain might be show and tell, but you might be playing against a, a blue base control deck as well. Yeah, it's really brutal. And I when show and tell or sorry, when preordain showed up on the scene, nobody was saying that that was one of the reasons. You know, people were talking about fetch lands, people were talking about drawing it in a late game and, you know, seeing certain cards versus a ponder, situations where you'd have to shuffle away a card from a ponder if you wanted to cast something. And they were making the argument for playing like two ponders and two preordains. And even some people like BBD went so far as to say that preordain was just a better card in pile. Which I never really agreed with, but I could certainly buy into the 2-2 split. But that disinformation campaign of playing Preordain in like a pile deck, like disguising what deck you're playing, I think that has serious value right now because it's harder than ever from from my seat, just playing online especially, to identify decks right now. It's It's brutal. I was talking, I think on the last episode about how the first two times I played against this Phoenix deck, I've just got fucking rolled because I thought I was playing against Show and Tell both times. And I, I just kept the wrong cards for the matchup. Like I was aggressively shuffling away plows. And yeah, it, it's just like a deck identification is really difficult within blue decks right now. And sometimes impossible, to be honest. But I think that it's extremely valuable skill and probably more valuable than ever. And I think, I think this just leads into it. Obviously, early game, you want to be able to use your mana efficiently. And if you have a land light hand, sometimes you need a cantrip to hit your land drops. But a very good rule of thumb is that y- you just you don't have to cast your cantrips early. If you're not sure what you need to improve your hand, if you have threats that you could play, if you aren't sure what your opponent's playing then maybe you can hold your ponder until you can make it more effective maybe you can hold your preordain 
obviously holding your brainstorm as long as you can is going to make it the most effective, but playing your cantrips not just on mana curve, but playing your cantrips to find things is a much better way of playing those cards. Yeah, if anybody's like a new player out there, one of the sayings that I like the most is the best brainstorm is the one that you never cast. Like you you just always are almost always are going to benefit tremendously by stalling with with your brainstorm because you get to see, you know, maybe you're trying to find lands but you have three lands on the top and now your land flooded and your brainstorm actually didn't help you and you didn't get much value out of it, right? The more information you have and you cast your brainstorm, the better off you are. All right, so I think the way that we want to do this is we want to go back and forth and we want to sort of quiz each other on what our thought process would be going through based off of a certain start. So do you want me to start asking you a question? Sure, yes. Yeah, demonstrate what we're talking about. All right, so here's here's an easy one. Basic Mountain Pass. Okay, <laughs> In this situation, is Blood Moon Stompy, or I guess it could be like a show-and-tell deck, but I, I really don't think so, because the amount of... Assuming this is game one, right? The amount yeah, of, we're, we're, assuming, we're assuming game one. I, I've, if you can't figure out what your opponent's playing in game two, then... Right, yeah. Oh, sorry, that's a dumb question. <laughs> so the amount of keepable hands in burn that don't involve either hopefully playing a swift spear or a goblin guide on turn one or at least suspending a rift bolt or sending a lava spike upstairs on chain one turn one excuse me it's i don't know I'm, i'm sure there is a scenario where you could find a keepable burn hand with no turn one play but it's extremely unlikely so i would 100% be putting this person on blood moons I I would also agree with you. I think there there are just there are two decks or three decks if you want to include show and tell that would have that start. I think it is most likely Stompy, but you'll know on your end step whether or not you get bolted. I think there are some burn hands that you definitely keep. Yeah. That, yep. That don't cast that that burn spell on turn one, but it is most likely the Blood Moon Stompy. It would have to be like. Bolt, Bolt, Eidolon, Fire Blast, or something along those lines. It's a pretty rare hand, in my in my opinion, in my estimation, and my experience playing the matchup, right? And you also need to sort of look at what the, the probability of certain decks is, and if a deck has a higher metagame share, then it is a higher probability to be that deck. And so. the, the thing about Burn, too, in that scenario that you just mentioned is Lightning Bolt is, is their most versatile spell, right? Because Rift Bolt has timing restrictions and lava spike can only go upstairs so they're generally trying to get those out of their hand first and save the lightning bolts in case they need to use them on like a lifelink creature you know you're playing like stoneforge and jit or you have jit in your hand or whatever so generally that that's a pretty rare scenario is what i'm trying to say yep and i wanted to give you an easy one to start off with so there's the easy one now hit me up all right verdant catacombs Fetch an island. Uh, you're playing against Alex Bertoncini. Yo, you fucking nailed it, bro. <laughs> Banned for life. Scope. Uh, actually, Lawrence was talking about how potentially you could play 
a version of Hardened Scales Affinity in Legacy because of the interaction between Ancient Stirrings and how <laughs> broken that card was. And that card is super fucking broken when you can get a Hardened Scales from it. Yeah. So, for real, though. <sighs> Polluted Delta Pass. Ugh. Okay, so I am probably putting my opponent on Grixis control. However, it could be an insane number of things. Like, I'm... I Depending on the makeup of my hand... I think that the the ranking, if I'm playing in paper, would be number one, Grixis Control, number two, Storm. If I'm playing online, that might that might switch. Exactly, yeah. Because in paper, Grixis Control is definitely higher represented than Storm. Storm is a very high percent representation online. So if I was playing on MTGO, I'm probably thinking Storm number one and then Grixis Control second. It could also be a slew of blue decks. And really what what you're thinking about in that in that situation is you've you've narrowed out that you're playing against a non-chalice deck. You're not playing against any of the taxes slash maverick. You're sort of narrowing down what you're not playing against. And what I'm thinking about in that situation is what is my hand good against and what is my hand weak against? And I'm I'm trying to analyze what I'm playing against based off of what I have in my hand and how those matchups were go would go. Does that make sense? You hit yeah, basically all the points that I wanted to hit with that question. And let so let's say that you're playing Delver and you have Delver, let's say you have Land, Wasteland, Delver, Spell Pierce as, you know, four of your cards, but no Days or Force of Will. What do you do in that situation? Do you play your, your Delver or do you leave up Pierce? I play my Delver. Okay. Yeah. Like, I, I think that as the Delver deck, that since you do not have Days and you don't have Force and your only interaction is Spell Pierce, that you're going to get bogged down if you don't get a clock on the board early. And if a storm opponent's going to kill you on turn two, they're going to kill you on turn two and not playing your Delver on turn one. And then having your opponent not being on storm just ends up not working out in your favor at all. Agreed. Yeah. And that's something that I've been in the situation a ton. And this is why I asked this question because it seems like this is every game that I'm playing online recently is you know, blue fetch land pass. And in your head, you go to the worst case scenario. I think this is a mistake that a lot of early legacy players sort of get like a, like a decision paralysis analysis paralysis situation with this sort of stuff where they envision, you know, you have this vision of like always losing on turn two or whatever in legacy before you play it. So they're always like, okay, what's the worst case scenario? Okay. I need to leave up spell pierce in this situation, but what you need to do, it's like, you know, when you need to hit on a 16 in, in blackjack, right? You just need to make the high percentage play. Yeah, and I think most of the time in the dark on that, I, I, I'm playing the Delver almost 100% of the time. That's that's the right play there. 
Yeah, and we're we're speaking about online, obviously, where there's no like visual tells or that sort of thing. Okay, so volcanic island preordain. So in my mind, I'm just immediately saying this is show and tell because I've played for so long against this kind of start that this could have only been show and tell. But this is how I got blown out. Uh, what I was telling you about those scenarios with the uh, Intuition Arclight Phoenix decks. And also, right now, the, the metagame share of Blue Red Delver is almost as high as Show and Tell. It's like, I want to say 5% Blue Red Delver and 7% Show and Tell. And online, it feels like I'm probably playing against more Blue Red Delver than Show and Tell at this point. So you really can't rule out Blue Red Delver because a lot of them are playing some number of preordains now. You know, Gitaxian Probe got banned. Some of the Blue Red decks are on like a Young Pyromancer plan. A lot of them are just on a Prowess plan. So just, you know, Blue, they're trying to load up on Cantrips. So they're playing some number of preordains. So you really can't rule out Blue Red Delver either. Unfortunately, a lot of times in this scenario, you have to respect that they're they're likely on show and tell, and a lot of times you get blown out by days in this scenario. But that that's all you can know. Yep. So I would I would add that you hit on all three of the major points that I was trying to make. It's unlikely to be a control deck, although it could be. You hope it is, because then you just wasteland the fuck out of the game. So, you you kind of get to play the show-and-tell and Phoenix matchup very similarly, because Phoenix wants to cantrip Ritual Buried Alive and then blow you out on the next turn. So, taking taking the conservative line against that start would be something that I'm much more likely to do rather than the Fetchland pass. So I think it's unlikely to be Blue Red Delver. I think they're still mostly playing just Brainstorm and Ponder, although I have seen preordains in some of those lists. But I would be definitely going off of that as a sort of um, spell-based combo deck. Yeah, definitely. All right, what do you got for me? Chrome Mox. Okay, just Chrome Mox? Yep. Uh I mean if we're if we're in this situation I think I think that we're just letting that happen, right? Even I if you, I always you, do, yeah. Even if even if you have a counterspell, I almost always will put that in, sort of as a as an all in combo deck. You don't see too many ga- too many decks trying to go late, playing Chromox. So you think you think Belcher, you think sometimes Tes. I can't think of anything else that I would be 
that I would be worried about right now with Chrome Mox. Well, there's like I don't the even blood, think Black Red the, Reanimator is playing that anymore. There's Maybe like the oops. Chalice Blood Moon start. Oh, okay. I forgot. Yeah, and maybe it's fallen off, but that's a start that I've seen a lot out of them historically. Okay. Yeah, I I did not think about Dragon Stompy because we had already talked about it. But that that definitely could be a Dragon Stompy start. Yeah, and really what I was trying to bait out of this was if you have like a force of will in hand, should you force a Chrome Mox, right? I mean, I don't think you ever do that. I never do, no. But that is definitely a play that I've seen other people make. So I, I think that it's something that, you know, might come up for new players. Okay. Without more information, I don't think I've ever seen anybody make that play or would have talked to anybody who would say, oh, yeah, in the dark, if somebody plays a Chromebox, you definitely <laughs> force it. Like, that's just, it's not, I don't know, that's just not something that I have ever thought about. Well, so, like, if you're a new player and you might get trapped into thinking, okay, they didn't play a land out first, right? So yep. this Chromox might be their only mana source or some some situation like that, right? Yeah, but I guess if you're playing against, like, a mono-red Stompy deck and it's their only mana source, then it doesn't matter. And if you're playing against another deck and it's their only mana source, then you want to counter the payoff card. Like, they're all, sort of already all in on what they're going to do, right? So if they don't play a land and then they cast a Ponder, would you counter the Ponder? With a Force of Will? No. Right. Would you? No, absolutely like, not. I mean, like... Yeah, you, you you just you're in a really good spot where they two for one themselves. It just screams they bait. Right? They don't have a land. Yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, know. in that situation, I always assume that they have a land, that they have like a multiple Chrome Mox hand or something like that, and they're just trying to bait you into wasting counter spells. Okay, all right. Here, Forest Noble Hierarch. This one's really on brand for you. Yeah. So. There is a chance that it's the bug deck that I was talking about earlier. Not a bug Delver deck, but like that specific bug mid-range true name deck that Tom and one other person are playing online. But it's really not like a popular deck or a proven deck or anything like that. So you have to assume that you're playing against either Maverick or Infect at this point. Because both those decks will have a basic forest. The the chance that they're just naturally playing a basic forest, that actually makes it more likely that it's Maverick because they didn't fetch for it. And really if it's a if it's a seven keep for infect, that's a pretty weak keep because you wanna be at least representing days even if you don't have it on turn one. So a lot of times they will like fetch for a forest and play a hierarch. But that's like a, a show of strength. Uh, like a tropical island hierarch is like a, representing a daze. So I, I would, if I had a gun to my head, say that was Maverick. Okay. I, I, gave, you, I gave you that question knowing that those were the two answers. I just wanted to, wanted to hear you walk through it. Do you think, like, that, think it's, that it's more likely to be Infector? I think it's more likely to be Maverick. Just okay. because of the number of forests that are in the deck. Yeah, and from my experience playing Infect, a lot of times you're on over, you know, you're on nine, sometimes even ten fetch lands. So 
the likelihood you have a, a forest rather than like fetching the forest. Whereas Maverick decks very often have two forests in their main and only yep. like six or seven fetch lands. I agree. All right. So Ancient Tomb, Sorcerer's Spyglass. Oh, Jesus. My original thought is Eldrazi post. I don't know if Steel Stompy runs that main deck. I don't think Eldrazi Stompy would play that either. Uh, could it be the Antiquities War deck? I wouldn't really put that sort of on the radar. My my original guess is Eldrazi post, although I'm open to be wrong about it. No, I would absolutely think that, that was Eldrazi post. And I don't know, that's a good question, whether the Antiquities War plays Spyglass. I've never seen it out of them. Yep. I'm just, but... I'm, I'm thinking of all the decks that potentially could play it. And what the most likely, what the most likely card, uh, what the most likely deck would be, and obviously you see an ancient tomb start and it narrows it down quite a bit. Even just ancient tomb chalice, you're you're probably you know what you are playing against. You just don't know how, what the curve is like. So, so what do your considerations? So they're telling you basically that I'm a chalice deck but I'm playing Sorcerer's Spyglass. So what does that tell you about the deck? That it is more likely to be less aggro. That's that's it. So the reason why I immediately went to Eldrazi Post is, okay, you're playing an Ancient Tomb deck, but you're playing sort of an interactive card that like bridges toward a later game. And that, to me, leads itself to be a larger... A larger casting cost deck like Mud or Eldrazi Post. Yeah, when I see Sorcerer's Spyglass, one of the cards that instantly pops into my head is Ensnaring Bridge. Because like a lot of the Blood Moon decks, I don't think this is a main deck thing right now. Especially not right now with all the Rabble Master stuff, but they're they have like post board plans where they go on to Ensnaring Bridge, right? And they become like this sort of spyglass and steering bridge control deck. The Tez decks can do that. And the Eldrazi post decks can do that too. And that's sort of like, okay, we're settling in versus the Eldrazi aggro where they're going to drop the pedal the next turn, right? Yeah. I, I don't think that there are, there might be some builds of Eldrazi aggro where you want to have a spyglass, but I, I feel like that doesn't really fit with your game plan game one of just getting them dead. Right. And that's kind of a slow start. It is a very weak start, yeah. It does feel bad, though, man. Every time I get spyglass on turn one, I'm like, fuck. Because it's, <laughs> like it, it's like getting probed used to be, you know? Because a lot yeah. of times, they're going to know your hand, but a lot of times uh, they're also going to turn off a fetch land for you. Yep. So All right. Sometimes that can be a backbreaking play. It it can be. Okay, so here. Swamp thought sees you. Yeah, this is this is a fucking brutal start. Unfortunately, this is probably the start you see more than anything now. What art is the swamp? Uh we'll say guru if we're playing <sighs> online. All right, thank God. So that's a storm player. 
Okay. I, I, so I, don't know, I man. I, what? Where were you going with this? Well, I obviously that that is a storm start for sure. I think that the basic swamp. I mean, that's that's less likely than a reanimator player. It's. I mean, that's also a reanimator start. Yeah. I think that I would lean more toward reanimator than storm. Yeah, I've seen that Guru Swamp out of so many Storm decks, and I I do know what you're saying though. But a lot of times with the with the Reanimator decks, they start with like a Dark Ritual into a Thought Seize if they can, right? Or there's like a a Chancellor off the bat. There's some sort of other tell as to what they're playing. Like just starting with a Thought Seize targeting you on turn one, that's such a such a common start for storm and you don't see that exact start as much out of reanimator in my experience okay yeah there are there are more tells to what a reanimator player could do before with chancellor and ritual and maybe playing out their pedal before the thought sees exactly yeah, you're not you're not eliminating by any means. You're not eliminating Black Red Reanimator, but at that point, I would be thinking Storm more than Black Red. But yes. Okay, so I was I was coming into that question thinking about Black Red, but completely understanding that there are many many different answers that you can give to that. Yeah, and unfortunately, that could just be Grixis Control, right? It it could be, but the Grixis Control decks that I've seen lately have been relying more on him yeah. and less on Thoughtseize. I've seen like one Thoughtseize main deck, sometimes zero. Um, I think the stock list right now are running one where the other the other decks that you have, you're running multiples. They definitely play less Thoughtseize than Reanimator and Storm. Yeah, 100%. Agreed. But then there's also the Death Shadow angle to that. Does Death Shadow play a basic swamp? Oh, I don't know. I assumed that they were playing a basic swamp. I don't think they are. I think they play their one dual land, their right. shock yep. lands, and that everything is pretty much a non-basic. Yep, you're right. I was trying to cover all the bases, but blown out. They are not playing a swamp. And that makes sense because it's not getting you out of a chalice anyway, right? Now, what other decks could it be? So, playing a Swamp, right? It could be like a bug mid-range deck. Like, your creature combo decks, like the Aloran and Food Chains, generally will play one of each of their basics. Like, one Forest, one Swamp, and one Island. And they'll also play Thought Seizes. They're a combo deck, they're protecting their combo. They're also like a a fair mid-range deck too so they they sometimes just want to see what's in your hand and and go from there and you know have it has nothing to do with like setting up a quick combo it's just their turn one play right so you can't rule those decks out by any means uh the the bug deck that that tom's playing right now has a basic swamp and four thought seasons so that's on my radar probably because i'm working with him on the deck so like any sort of bug mid-range deck that's a very likely start for them although that deck is not as popular as storm or, or reanimator online um other than that 
I can't really think of anything. What do you got? Could be one more. One more deck. What, like, uh, I'm trying to think of, like, obscure decks, like a Jund or something. It's not it, obscure. It's not obscure. What am I, what am I missing? Uh, uh, I don't know, man. What do you got? It's just slow. It's just slow, but it's not slow enough to play, like, a Chalice? What do you mean, like, Pox? So slow depths. Oh fuck, dude. Yep. It could be. It could be dark depths as well. Yep. Uh, you're absolutely right. So there, are, obviously, there are some starts that are just a nightmare to figure out, and Swamp Thoughtseize is one of the ones that I thought of where it's more likely that you're going to be able to figure out what they're playing by what they take with their Thoughtseize than the actual action of casting the Thoughtseize. So if that Thoughtseize resolves, you are much more likely to be able to figure out what your opponent's playing based off of what they take out of your hand. And that was one of the situations that I thought would be good to talk about. That was a great one. Yeah, I totally was blanking on depths. Okay, let's do let's do two more. All right. So Savannah... Aether Vial. Uh, okay. Now, if this was three weeks ago, three weeks ago, I might put them on that that four-color Atraxa deck that we had Rodney <laughs> on to talk about. Yeah. Uh, there are versions of green-white taxes that play Choke in the sideboard and have Gaddic Teague and, um, and Pride Mage, but those are unlikely. There's the five-color humans deck that plays Vile, and I think it has some number of Savannah. Does Slivers play a Savannah? Dude, I was actually just about to Google that because I, I wasn't thinking about Slivers when I asked this question. So I I, I think that they play off of all five-color lands. You're right, yep. Uh, but that that probably would have would have went through went through my mind. But I'm I'm probably saying the humans deck. Yep. And some of the decks are just playing like all the ancient ziggurat type of lands and horizon canopies and no savannas. But some of them that are more towards like the Maverick version would would have this kind of start. But basically it's not a day's start, right? It's not like a like a potential like a Merfolk kind of Aether Vial deck start. So you're looking at like one of these flood the board creature decks, like a Slivers, like a Humans, or like a 25 creature Maverick, or like that Mariki sort of deck that Rodney was talking about. Yeah, you're obviously you see Vile, you think flood the board with creatures. You're not playing Aether Vile without a, a, a minimum number of creatures. So you look at the decks that can do that, and you try to figure out which ones are base green white and even though like i don't think i've ever seen that start in legacy but my thought process would have been uh <laughs> humans shit does slivers play savannah <laughs> um and then and then probably sticking to human yeah basically what you can assume at this point is that this deck plays both mother of runes and noble hierarch in my opinion 
or it's just like some wacky brew, right? Okay. I think those are those are fair assumptions. All right, I got I got my last one for you. Mox Diamond. So traditionally this was always lands. Like last year you could just pack it up. You're playing against lands. You know what your hand does against lands. Unfortunately now the depth decks have gotten wise to the power of diamonds. More people than just Lincoln Baxter incorporating diamond in their list. I think David Long made this popular at Eternal Weekend, where instead of playing like this pedal all in go plan, they're in it for the grind. They're playing like one or two loams in their main board sometimes. And this could be a depth start. And just by the amount of depth that I've seen, relative to lands i would give that a slight edge but aggro loam i have still seen more than either of those decks i guess if you aggregate the diamond and the non-diamond depth decks that might still be more popular but with a gun to my head i would have to say this was aggro loam okay so here's here's the situation for you you have a similar hand to what you described earlier Let's say a spell pierce with some cantrips and you have a mana in play and your opponent before playing their land casts their diamond. Do you ever consider spell piercing that blind? No, absolutely not. Because you can still pierce a vi- uh, excuse me, a chalice. So if they're going to go chalice and you're really concerned about losing to one drops, then you can just pierce the chalice, right? I, I never pierce mox diamond some of this is like this weird subconscious thing i was talking to our friend sean about this weekend actually where they're about to two for one themselves and you don't want to like prevent them from doing that because you just want them to go down a card right so i i don't think i've ever countered a diamond on turn one before so there are there are starts from depths where that could potentially be the only target that you're going to get it on, right? Yep, yep. Diamond can lead some to some really explosive starts out of lands, too. I guess they all sort of involve something that you're going to end up being able to spell pierce later on, yep. but I I would be more likely to spell pierce a diamond than a chrome mox. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see where you're coming from in that that regard. There is this other interesting scenario where they go diamond. Let's say they pitch a tranquil thicket and then they go diamond. Do you pierce the second diamond? Well, I mean, you you are going to be in some serious trouble if they get to loam back their two land. Even if you pierce the loam, it's still going to be in the yard that they're going to get to dredge. I'm not sure, obviously, what I would do in that situation. It depends on the context of your deck. But I feel like if they're playing their second one, you probably want to let it resolve and hope that your spell pierce hits something important. Yeah, see, I think I fire off that that pierce there because at that point, because Tranquil Thicket's in the yard, I, I understand this deck, the Tranquil Thicket's also in Loam, but I'm more concerned, I think, about exploration at that point that I won't be able to counter anymore. So I think I'm just going to fire off that pierce on that second diamond and that could be wrong i I 100 admit i could be wrong there but that that is a scarier start in my opinion because if they if they go like 
second diamond, and then land exploration loam, you're in a fucking world of pain. Right, but like diamond, diamond, land, exploration is six cards. Yeah. So it is, It. I guess the exploration is unlikely to be a follow-up. Um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I'm not sure that they would play out the second diamond if they didn't have like some sort of god hand like that but anyway it, it's well I, I would be more likely to think that they just had a loam that they for sure right back. yeah they for yeah. sure had a loam at that point okay so any other interesting ones that you want to talk about well so do we want to talk about the metagame of what your opponent is wearing uh, like what sort of clothes that they're wearing and what deck they might be playing maybe i'm wrong about judging people based off of the artwork on their playmat and maybe people just meta it like they'll show up with their deck box that says dredge and their pile of zombie tokens sticking out of the top and then play show and tell like i've definitely seen people do that i don't know do you want to give some some situations like if you're sitting down across from somebody that looks like zach turgeon you're probably playing blood moon well, he's he's pretty honest about what he does. Zach is is a very honest person. Uh, like I don't know, just in the way he carries himself, like the way he presents himself, he's not trying to mislead anybody, in my opinion. Uh, there are a lot of players that you'll see with like a Blood Moon playmat, and it means that they're playing like uh, elves or death and taxes or something like that, and they're trying to like throw this this weird sign, but. In general, there, so there's the watch metagame. Uh, I, if you read up on watches and just generally have like a, a quick idea of like, you know, whether the second hand's sweeping or ticking, you know, how much someone's watch might cost, how much their deck box might cost. These are reasonable tells to use when you're playing paper magic, just like to, to narrow down some, some things, right? Whether the now, person. I, I'd be wary of that. I I was playing for uh, an SCG top eight. This is back when uh, it was just the the Sunday legacy event, and in the last round, I was playing against a black green pox player, and they had revised, obviously white bordered basic lands, and I made the gamble that. They did not have a tabernacle based off of their basic land choice. That they didn't have a tabernacle in their list. And I was playing the Owen Turtenwald, Blue White Red Delver, had true names, Stoneforge and all of that. And I took the line that lost to Crop Rotation Tabernacle. And my opponent, with their white-bordered, beat, revised basic lands... Crop rotated for their tabernacle, and I lost. Their Italian tabernacle, am I correct? No, it was English. Wow, I would have got blown out too. Yep. So, so, so do not take anything that Ian says right now seriously. <laughs> no, man, I, I'm not even joking, though. There, there definitely is something to that. Like, maybe it's just getting in your own head, comforting yourself by pretending you know what your opponent's playing, but... If somebody's hair is combed, right, they're absolutely more likely playing a combo deck. Like if somebody's, if, if they have product in their hair, 
that in my experience is for sure way more likely to be a storm player. If somebody's truly like letting it go with their hair or wearing a hat, a lot of times you're, you're talking about like a, a Delver, a, a Grixis pile or show and tell player. And there's a whole spectrum, really. Okay, so somebody sits down across from you wearing a tie. What what are they playing? So is it like a goofy thing or is it like a serious like the like No, this is like a this is like a serious tie. Like a tie bar with a nice pressed shirt. And it's a a weekend tournament, not this is oh, like this some... is a weekend this is a weekend tournament, not a weeknight local after work i would put this person on for sure playing one of the top five meta decks yeah you you figure like if somebody's giving this like i don't waste my time vibe then they're probably the the most obscure deck i would put that person on i was probably something like reanimator right like they're either going to be playing grixis delver would be my first guess uh Pile, Miracles, Eldrazi, Show and Tell. That, that's, that's basically the range. Uh, a Storm, I'm sorry. Definitely Storm. Would probably be my range for that person. Okay. So I think we covered that quite a bit. And I don't know if there's anything else that you want to talk about tonight. I know we didn't get to the decks. Yeah, well, real quick, we... Wouldn't be a podcast. We wouldn't be our podcast if we didn't shout out Adam Wallace every episode. So, did Adam Wallace do anything this week that is warrants a shout out? He won the challenge. Adam, Adam's great. Uh, we love Adam. He uh, obviously is great with elves. I saw that he ran through a pretty pretty good top eight. This top eight, like of the challenge, I was looking at, and I was like, "Man, what's the seventh deck? What's the eighth deck?" And I remember thinking, like. These could be anything because this challenge was just all the fuck over the place. We had Arclight Phoenixes. We had a Greenway Maverick deck. You know what I mean? It was like a really showcasing the diversity of the format. And I think part of that was the NFL playoffs going on and that there were two modern GPs across country. So you kind of lost some grinders to that. But yeah, it was a, it was a really sweet legacy challenge to look at. I agree. Yeah, I think that's all we have tonight. I mean, we actually have a lot more, but you have to go, right? Yeah, dude, I... All right, so New <laughs> Year hit. I've been eating healthier. What? And before before the cast, I weighed myself. And I'm not I'm not going to say how much I weighed. But dude, I went how and How can I took you a, fucking do that to our listeners? Listen, this is the important part. I went and I took a dump. And I got back on the scale. And this was one of those like <laughs> those like workouts. I've definitely done where that. like your legs sorta get like numb and your your butt is sweaty on the seat. And I got right back on the scale and I was down three pounds. I've definitely not done that. That's that's a small child, man. That's like And uh, that's disturbing. I don't know if I should leave that in. That's gross. And I actually, I feel like, I feel like the Patreon pitch is not what I should be going into right now. But if you enjoy hearing about 
actually nobody enjoys hearing about that about people taking dumps and losing three pounds then you can hit us up at patreon we talk about this on the discord all the time yeah if you want to reach tom on twitter to talk about downton abbey or weighing yourself after taking a shit how should they do that you can get in touch with me at tsmileymtg and the cast at Dead Format Cast. And if you're a medical professional who would like to reach out to me to tell me that that's just not something that's normal and I need to go seek medical attention, uh, please do. Now, where, where can people get in touch with you if they want to inquire about replacing me as a co-host <laughs> when, I, when I die of some health-related issue? Yeah, uh, at Ian18125 on Twitter. And you can email the cast, deadformatcast at gmail.com. We're going for a new high score this week, so if we can get three emails, it'd be great. Yeah, we only need three emails for a new high score. I believe in you guys. I think you can do it. Yeah, so that's a wrap.